Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Luke Bailey, who's the founder of Four Tier Buyers Agents. Now, Luke's got a great story in that his first foray into property investing was unsuccessful. He's very generous in sharing the reasons why the properties didn't double in the first seven to ten years as he was expected. And then we talk about his chance with a property investing guru which set him on a different path to the point where he now has a portfolio of 14 high performing properties. We talked to Luke about his four main rules for selecting investment grade property. We talk about his own backyard in Adelaide and some of the areas that he's investing in across Australia. It's a great interview with Luke which I'm sure you'll enjoy. Here's Luke. Luke Bailey, thank you for joining me on Gear for Growth. Thanks very much for having me, Mike. Really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to, to chatting with you for a while, Luke. So let's jump in straight away with who you are and what you specialize in. Yeah, so obviously my name's uh, Luke and I specialize in helping people buy property. So I've got a, a property buyers agency based here in Adelaide and we specialize in helping people buy investment properties, uh, primary residence, family homes, and also renovation or add value type projects. Beautiful. And Adelaide is an area that we haven't really touched on, I think, as yet in the podcast. So I'm looking forward to to diving into a little bit of the the local market stuff uh, on this interview. But what posters were on the the bedroom wall for you growing up, Luke? (laughs) That's a a really good question. I I, I guess what posters were were on the wall, you know, it was probably more along the lines of – you know Robert Kiyosaki, and uh, you know I'm a big believer in in his uh, you know the way that he goes about things and um, and his teach you know the way that he teaches things. So um, probably not posters of Robert Kiyosaki, but certainly books uh, in the in the bedroom and and whatnot. So yeah. A poster would be weird, but you know yeah. the, the the rich dad poor dad stuff that that's come up as a sort of an inspiration point in quite a number of, of interviews. Got sort of Scott Papers, the the modern equivalent, and and you know you can see how successful he's been. It's a it's a similar sort of thread, I guess. Very much so, and I think a lot of people have um, you know taken after you know Rob Kiyosaki, and he's got Grant Cardone. He's another guy that you know he's a somebody that that supports positive cash flow investments and positive cash flow in real estate. So um, I think you know, Robert Kiyosaki is very much the, I don't know, the, the godfather, I guess <laughs> you could say. So um, yeah, he's an he's a, you know, inspiration. What about property? How did you get started, Luke? And what was your first investment? Yeah, so my first investment was back when I, I think I signed the contract when I was 18. So it settled by the time I just turned 19 years old. And to be honest, it, it really wasn't the best investment, and I've learned a lot from that first investment to, to what I do things and, and the way the way that I go go about things now. It was I grew up in a in a place and it's around about an hour, just over an hour from Adelaide, where property prices don't really grow too much, and the rental demand isn't really that high there. So it was actually a negative rigid investment that really didn't grow too much in, in capital growth. And, and back when I purchased my first one, I really didn't know what I was doing. I, I, I jumped into it you know, very much blindly. Um, and uh, yeah, so my investing philosophy has really changed since then. 
Believe it or not, these are sorts of stories that, that we love on this podcast because I think people relate to them, right? Well, I think sometimes we can learn a lot more, even individually, you can learn a lot more from your failures than your successes. I mean, the successes can be down to luck. You could have bought something in a booming market and thought, I'm a genius real estate investor, but you might not necessarily have learned as much as you have by, by buying what essentially turned out to be a dud. Um I want to d- delve into that, Luke, but let's start with you um, as a 15-year-old. I think that's about the sweet spot where property's really sort of starting to, to sort of, you know, marinate in your head as, as a direction that you want to head in. Can you tell us about the 15-year-old, Luke? Yeah, so I guess, um, you know, as a 15-year-old, I was you know, doing what every other 15-year-old does. You know, I like to play a lot of sport, like to, you know, muck around with cars, you know, you're almost getting your license. That, that sort of thing. But I around when I was 15 years old, the show, The the Block, actually started to air. It was around about then, and, and I was really intrigued. Um, there wasn't a lot of other shows on TV that were teaching people to renovate and, and whatnot. So that was my first, I guess, experience with, with property going, wow, like, you know, you can actually, you know, renovate properties to increase the value. You can do, you know, so many different things. And, um that was back, yeah, back when I was fifteen, and that was probably the first realization that I, you know, realized that I wanted to do something in property. But I, I guess being that young, you don't really know where to start. But that was, I guess, the first, the first spark for me. Yeah. Yep. And you've 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 claimed, I guess, in previous interviews, um, that you weren't necessarily a star pupil at school, and and rather than heading towards university, you were you were sort of thinking a trade was the way to go. But already there was this idea that well, a trade's also a bit handy when you look at the the, the block style of things when you're flipping properties. So w- w- was that sort of you know that was in the back of your head? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, saying that I was no star pupil, you know, I was really a, a D grade student, maybe even an E grade student. I, I really didn't do well at school whatsoever. And I really felt that was because of the, you know, I, I felt school was really unpractical. And, you know, they don't teach you things about starting a business. They don't teach you things about finance or, or real estate or how to communicate or how to, you know, the, the really important things in life that, um, you know, you've got to handle on a daily basis. So I was really disinterested with school. And then the flowing effect was, well, if I'm not really good at school, I'm not going to go to university. So I felt that the the only way for me to really get a start in life was to get was to get a trade. Um, so that's that's what I did. And and at 15 years old, I actually did work experience uh, as a plumber originally. And um, I yeah, basically that's yeah, I did work experience for for a week and. Um, yeah, didn't like plumbing, so. <laughs> <laughs> so the plumbing didn't spark joy for you and you ended up being an electrical uh, apprentice. Now, electrical apprentices, uh, I'm, I'm assuming this is a story of, you know, a, a pittance sort of wage and somehow you've got to property investing, but you were in the oil and gas space. So did that mean you were on a better wicket? Yeah, look, I um, I was on, you know, I guess apprentices have have historically been known not to earn a lot of money, and I wasn't on huge money, but it was on a it was on a, a lot better wage than what a typical apprentice would be on in the city. So that really, I guess, when you're on higher income, you can save a deposit a little bit quicker. You also have better serviceability as well. So um, that was that really helped when starting my portfolio. Yep. 
and from sort of 17 to 19 you're all about saving for your deposit so was that an arduous sort of thing and and can you tell us sort of what deposit you needed to get to the first property and and what you ended up pulling your trigger trigger on as the as the first purchase no even though i was on sort of higher income it still was a struggle um you know it was a struggle getting that that deposit and my first deposit it was it was around 20 i think maybe 20 or 25000 dollars and it's uh you know my first investment property was was a two hundred thousand dollar purchase. So in terms of what made me pull the trigger, um, it was really my my father. He, you know, he was really get, pushing me into investing, and it wasn't just property. You know, we, we started up you know, different share accounts and trading accounts and whatnot, just to see which way I'd eventually go. Um, and he was really pushing me into you know buy your first property, just buy your first property, um, and that was, I guess, the starting point. Yep. And you actually moved fairly quickly into a second property. Was that just more diligent savings or, or did you make a win on that first one and, and that was actually a bit of a launching pad? Yeah, it was, it was I guess, um, when you buy your first property, you you know, you know get quite excited. So I actually began saving again for the, for the second one and, and managed to save in a, you know, quite a fast period of time and then pulled the trigger again. It certainly wasn't. By using the equity from the first one, because you know the first property that, that I bought, you did say it was a dud, so that makes yeah, sense. It, it didn't perform so well, um, so there was no equity being used to, to the second one. It was it was just saving uh, a similar sort of deposit um, and and saving really hard for that second one. So I guess these two properties were in the same sort of category, and and you you sat on them for for some time, and the old adage of properties doubling every seven to ten years didn't actually seem to ring true for these properties. So um, you mentioned on that first one that it was you know an hour out of Adelaide. Was the second property a similar style of property, and and what was the reason why these properties didn't go up? And I guess you'd probably classify them as as a as a, as a failed start to your investment portfolio. Yeah, this, the, the second property was very much the same as the as the first property. It was in a different location, around fifteen minutes, um, uh, fifteen minutes away in, in a different suburb. But it's it's really funny that you, you know that you mentioned that we hear it all the time in property that you know properties that it doesn't matter where you buy a property will double in a seven to ten year period, and it, it's just not the case. And I know that there have been some properties um, around Australia that, that do fit into that category, but the the fact is it's. Yeah, probably ninety nine percent of properties don't fit into that category, and, and probably more so moving forward, we're going to see probably less of it because of um, you know, the, I guess the property boom that we've had in certain areas in Australia for the past sort of you know ten years. So, um, yeah, I, I guess it's uh, you know it was a learning curve, and I'm actually to put some context um, and to put some numbers around the, the second purchase. It's I'm actually selling that this property. Uh, it's, it's on the market at the moment. I just want to put a bit of context. I, I actually paid. One hundred ninety thousand um, for it. It's it'll probably resell for around that two forty mark, and this is you know roughly twelve years on. So that's a. Ouch. I think it's only had. Yeah, I know. I, I just wanted to share that to the listeners, just to put some yeah context around that. Yeah, properties don't double every seven to ten, um, and uh, yeah, there's a good example of, of one that doesn't. 
Yeah, so I mean, one ninety to two forty on the face of it, it seems like that's you know that's that's gone up in value. So we've we've gone up you know roughly twenty percent, but you know we're talking over a twelve year time frame. So we're looking at here I am punching into my Excel calculator one point six seven percent return. So you know in terms of CPI over that twelve years, or you know even purchasing the most secure investment of cash or something like that you you've actually lost uh you've lost money yeah yeah 100 percent. that's a really good way to look at it it's um it's very much less than than inflation rate and when this property was was slightly negatively geared for for a long period of time as well so if you you add in the the negative gearing calculations it's the holding it probably cost, drops yeah. The, yeah it drops the, the, the probably the return down to around one percent 1.2 percent if you really sort of crunch the numbers and and put on all the costs so Great, le- great learning curve, and um, you know the way that I do things now is is very much different to the way I did things back then. But sometimes, sometimes these lessons are the best ones that you, that you learn in, in life and in, and investing. Yes, and I almost felt like I, I needed to apologise there because nothing sort of rubs the salt in uh, the wound of a of a bad investment decision like a quantity surveyor crunching the numbers on his Excel calculator for you. But <laughs> we know that there there's good news coming, so this this could quite possibly been the end of your investing career but we're going to sort of move towards greener pastures and there was a real sort of pivotal moment for you in your investing career I guess post those two properties where you bumped into someone that sort of changed the course a bit of a mentor that that influenced you can you can you tell us about this uh, encounter yeah so I realized that um, you know I bought a couple of couple of properties and they hadn't performed so well but then you you know you do read about people really understanding property investment. So I reached out to a guy, I won't mention his name because he's, he's quite a well-known figure around um, around Australia and I managed to get in front of him for a for lunch and he owned around 90 to 100 properties. I think he owns a few hundred properties now. And anyway, he, he gave me some really good lessons and he wasn't giving these lessons purely with property investing or it was more just some really good guidance with investing in general. And he said that, you really have to find people that are 10 or, or 20 years ahead of where you are right now and people that you want to be like and literally copy what they have done or you know, in some cases it might be pay for their time to teach you how they've done it because you're going to short track. You know, you, you can often get to where you want to get, but it might take 30 or 40 years. But if you have a mentor that has been there, um, you might be able to get there in five or ten. And what he said to me was was probably a pivotal moment because then I started to study um, personal development. I started to study real estate a lot more, real estate investing. I started to really become uh, addicted almost to becoming better in, in all areas of my life, and, and in particular uh, property investing. And it it almost took me on this on this journey to really discover what makes properties go up um, and what's the difference between people that. That maybe only ever ever achieve you know one or two properties, but or opposed to people that you know you get 10, 15, 20, 50, 100 properties. So that was, I guess, the the pivotal moment. Yeah. So in in ter- I mean, you've you, you've sort of sparked my attention with with a statement like that. What what do you think is the fundamental difference between the vast majority of property investors that that get the one or two properties compared to ones that that grow these larger portfolios? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I really think it's probably two different categories. The, the first one is um, 
what I just mentioned is finding that specialised knowledge because there's a lot of noise out there and a lot of information that really isn't isn't the right information. So I think the first the first one is finding a particular strategy or strategies um, that are proven and that work and getting someone to teach you them. And then secondly, and the second part is probably the biggest part, and that's the mindset. That's blocking out the noise of, of the media. That's not listening to people that tell you that you can't do it. That's, you know, having, I guess, persistence and um, all these little things put together that, you know, it, it's the story you play inside your head often that will stop you from doing something. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, 80% mindset and, and staying on track and coming up with a plan. And um, the other 20% is really acquiring the strategy that suits you and, and acquiring the knowledge and, and really just, I guess, getting around as many people as you can that um, that have achieved what you're wanting to achieve. That's an interesting point because, I mean, you might um, fall upon a, a strategy by chance or, or, or have a very highly researched strategy, but you've got to have the mental fortitude to see it through when there are times where it might not seem like the right thing or the market is, is, is hinting in one direction or the media is saying that this particular area is never going to grow or there are, there are greener pastures elsewhere. So, yeah, it's interesting you talk about the mindset part of that and having, having studied mindset and these different strategies, I, I I guess it begs the next question, you know, armed with all this new knowledge, what did you do next? What sort of strategies did you put in place? Yeah, so the strategies that I, that I really put in place from there was um, I, I started to develop a, a couple of set of rules that I'd, I'd love to share. And the first one was no more negative gearing properties. Um, that was that was rule number one. And, and it was really finding at a minimum neutrally geared properties at, at an absolute minimum ones that you know, if you go on holiday or go traveling or lose your job, um, they pay for themselves. So that that was the first rule. Second second one was was buying under market value, and this is this is un, you know this can be easier said than done, but really finding something that is is under the you know the, the comparatives under the like for like properties in that area that that have previously sold, and it can be hard because you might have to look at 30 properties before you choose that, this, you know, the, the next one. So you've got to say no to, to a lot of properties because they might be overpriced. Um, probably rule, rule number three was really buying in a high growth area and high growth was really determined on a, a lot of data and a lot of research to point to the high growth areas. And um, I'm happy to, you know, go into some details a little bit later about, you know, what, what we look for in, in high growth uh, areas, um, and the rule number four that we that I really developed was, you know, you've got to be able to add value somehow, and that could be through a subdivision, or that could be through a uh, you know cosmetic or a structural renovation. I'm, you know, I'm a I'm a big supporter of people buying things that you can add value and and you know seeing things that other people not yet often can't see. Um, I mean, sometimes when you walk into a property, people think people will buy it because it's had a you know a pure renovation. Where I look, you know, walk into a property and, and prefer prefer to, to buy something that's unrenovated, if that makes sense. Yep. No, of course it does, and I definitely want to jump into sort of what you mean by high growth and and how you chase those high growth uh, potential properties. But let let let's talk on that sort of rule number four in in adding values. I, I know that um you know one of your strategies is is the cosmetic renovations, but I've I've also sort of heard you talk about subdivision and that sort of thing. Um, 
is 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 that basically the the adding value that you're talking about and and how critical has that been as part of your strategy to getting to the point where you've you're, you're now sitting on i think it's 14 properties right yeah correct yeah so it's been a it's been a big part um of my journey and you know i was working away as an electrician after i was qualified and i was i was on really high income so you know i was able to save um save quite fast but but also adding the add value component like little subdivisions where you're buying properties that you know might be on a corner or you might be able to do you know a hammerhead or battle axe style to then you know do that or and then pay down the debt which you know puts your property in a, in a high um sorry lower lvr position enabling you to then use that equity and go again it's, it's really you know a great way to to fast track uh, you, you probably invest in journey, and um, it's been it's been a, a big part of particularly the, the I guess the, the 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 later half of um of my property portfolio. That I, I really don't buy anything now that I can't add value, in. and I you know I'm a big um a big fan of that strategy. I guess. And I guess when you sort of say you're you're on a, a higher income, I, I think you know certain property investors would sort of think, oh well, that, you know that's how Luke's been able to do it. You know, I'd be able to invest you know terribly well on a high income, but that high income essentially has just meant that you've been able to go further faster. But you you you're not servicing the debt, right? Because we're talking about um, neutrally geared properties at a minimum, or or wherever possible, positively geared properties. So it's not really the high income that's enabled you to to purchase uh, the property. It's just it's enabled you to purchase more more quickly, right? Yeah, correct. That's a, that's one hundred percent. So you know, it, it's enabled me from a bank's perspective to be on higher income. They you know, enable you to, I guess, borrow more, and it's, you know, it's enabled me to, to fast track a little bit quicker, maybe than, than the average person. But, um, you know, but in terms of holding the properties, I haven't, been, you know, haven't had to chip in, uh, you know, a lot of money to to make the you know, the repayments and, and whatnot. You mentioned paying down the debt. So back, um, maybe we're talking five years ago, that the the lending landscape was a little bit different, right? You could buy a property, you could have it go up, you know, in value twenty percent over a couple of years, and then just pull that equity straight out and go again. It, it's a little bit different now, right? And, and and I'm just wondering how that sort of paying down the debt strategy has has worked for you, and has that changed in the last little while yeah really good question i do feel it has changed particularly in the last i guess 18 months or two years maybe three years where it's it is a lot harder and i know that a lot of you know valuers are being a lot more conservative so if you are looking to you know buy a property and and pay down the debt or or buy a property and renovate it to then i guess refinance to try and use that equity to to go again it it is a lot harder now but it's a strategy that um, if you do it, you know, and if you're doing, um, you know, if you're not overcapitalizing, and th- there still is ways to do it, you've just got to be a little bit more, I guess, strategic uh, now than, than maybe five years ago. And what's your motivation for for sort of paying down the debt when potentially you could leave it as is and just move into the next properties? Is your goal to sort of get your properties under an LVR or certain LVR percentage over a certain time, just from a from a risk perspective? What, what's your what's your sort of end game with with paying down the debt? Because I know a lot of property investors, if they could, would just go interest only at ninety percent and you know add property, add property, add property, and then worry about it sort of later in life you know, around when they're thinking about retirement planning? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a couple of different things. The, the first one would be, 
um, risk management. So having a lower LVR, you know, having a property that's sitting there uh, paying for itself and you're earning some some good cash flow from it is a, is a great way to you know mitigate risk. Um, I think secondly as well, if you've got some equity sitting in a property or you have a low LVR and a really good I guess opportunity comes. Um, you've got some equity there to, to grab it, um, and, and I know some people, you know, will want to just as soon as they have equity, they, they just want to buy again. And um, I think sometimes you, you know, waiting, a, you know, a few months to, for the right opportunity can often be the, the best way to go. So it's, it's a couple of reasons: one's to you know lower the risk, and one and the other ones to I guess have some equity in there to to seize on an opportunity. So just touching back on that add value strategy with, with with renovations, I know you mentioned you you go into property and your eyes light up if there are a few things to do. What are the what are the bang for buck things are we talking about? Is it just the cosmetic that it's going to get you a better revalue or a better quality of tenant or, or or upping the rent, or is it something a bit more structural like adding a bedroom or a bathroom? What what are we talking about there, Luke? Yeah, so a couple of different strategies that I like with um with adding values. Obviously, the first one is just a basic cosmetic renovation, and, and that's really about not overcapitalizing. So you don't want to go into a house that um and, and put a you know twenty five thousand dollar kitchen in the house if the area doesn't demand it. So a lot of it's matching the demographics that are in the area, and also not overcapitalizing. So cosmetic for for me would be a lot of it's paint. So you know it's so basic, but I think you know painting a house, like interior, uh, exterior, doing some um, exterior paint, even painting the tiles is a very, very low cost way to increase the uh, the value of, of a property. Um, also, the kitchen as well. We really don't overcapitalize on a kitchen. Um, you know, even sometimes, and I, you know, if it does need a full kitchen, an IKEA kitchen is you know low cost, often the best way to add some value. Um, if you wanted to keep the cost even lower, things like changing the bench tops. Uh, changing the the taps and the fittings, even painting the cupboards, is a great way to add value and and give the the kitchen a really big, um, I guess you know fresh uplift and, and then also some street appeal as well. I think is really important. So making you know things like changing a front door is it can make a house look completely different from the front. So I think street appeal, um, you know, kitchen paint and then some you know minor things in the bathroom can really uplift the, the value of, of a property. And then probably secondly, going into something a little bit more advanced and a bit more detailed would be the the structural side of things. And I guess you, you just add um you just mentioned, you know, adding another another bedroom. It's a great way to add value to a property, particularly if you're, you know, buying a two bedroom place and the particular area that you're buying the two bedroom you know, may demand for three bedrooms because, you know, you're going to target more family, families. If you can add another bedroom somehow, you can really uplift um, the, the price of that of that property, particularly if you can do that internally and you not have to, you don't have to build a slab and go through council approvals. If you can do, if you can add a bedroom externally, it's, um, again, that's a, that's a great low-cost uh, strategy. And that's a great one when it comes to comparables too because you could easily sort of jump on and say, well, what's the difference between a three-bedder three and a four-bedroom in my suburb? And, you know, you can see exactly what, what extra premium people are and figure out how much would it cost for me to do it and, and then you're getting a sort of a pretty pretty good ROI. Yeah. Yeah, re- really, really good ROI. And, you know, if you are doing this to, to refinance and use that equity to, you know, maybe purchase again, I would definitely, um, you know, definitely print out some comparatives and give it to the give it to the valuer and say, look, you know, this is um, 
this is what we you know we we are expecting the the property to come in at uh, based on all of this. And then, I mean they they have this information already, but I think when you are you know, quite aware of what your property should be worth now, and and they you know there's um there's a conversation that happens. It can really uh, help your evaluation as well. Yeah, exactly. Let's. Um, I want to jump back to your rules. So going through the the four, there was you know buy neutral or positively geared, under market, high growth, and then adding value. If we can talk about number three about high growth, I'm I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this and 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 actually a definition of of, of what you're getting at there. So are you looking at properties that have demonstrated high growth where you might be sort of paying a premium but you know that it's going to perform well, or you are you looking for sort of drivers before it actually happens? And 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 whichever one it is, how do we find it? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So for me, it's not. Um, I know that a lot of people look at the, the proven um, the proven suburbs that have performed so well over the last 30 years and they'll, they'll just buy there. For, for me, it's not really about that because there's a couple of reasons. One, um, you know, affordability is a big issue that we have in Australia and it's, it's never going to go away. It's always going to be there. So I think targeting really affordable areas, it should be, you know, one of the rules. But in terms of finding... Um, an area or a suburb that is going to perform really well, we really split it down into into two different areas. And the first one is what are the long-term factors that, that are going to cause this area to grow in value? And, and some of those long-term factors are, you know, where is the government spending their money? Where, where are the jobs going to be coming from? Not just where are, the, where are the jobs, what sort of income are people going to be on in this area? It's okay to have a lot of jobs, but if the, the wage isn't high, it's not really going to affect the property prices because people are, you know, are not going to have money to, to buy them. So we want to really understand where are, where are the jobs um, coming from? What is the property price in relation to people's income in this area? Um, so that, that's some of the, I guess, the long-term factors. A lot of those things, and you know, new jobs and new hospitals and new infra- infrastructure don't really cause property prices to, to move up immediately. They're more of a long-term thing. But in terms of the short-term thing and what particular suburb we are targeting, we're really looking at things like um, it, it all comes down to supply and demand, but we're looking at things how much supply is on the market right now, how much supply will be coming into the market, what's the demand like in this particular area, and we look at things like you know um, like the sales volumes for this particular area, how long are things staying on the market? Is this decreasing? Is it has it gone from 150 days on the market? To now 120 to to now you know 99. So so these are some really good indicators that I guess we use to to help you know really dig down into what area is going to grow really well in in, in capital growth and ultimately you know whether it's you know property or, or anything else it, it really comes down to supply and demand and it but it's about understanding the supply and understanding the the demand to to then select that area um, you know to buy in and, and we ultimately select a, a, you know a suburb or an area first before we um before we look at the property yep and uh, and obviously you've you've shared some great metrics that can help 
I guess give us an insight into into what the demand and supply characteristics are, are like in in certain areas. So some some great tips there. Let's talk about some of the areas that you've had success in and you're looking towards. And, and if you wouldn't mind, because we haven't given Adelaide a lot of love and it's been sort of off the radar of national media as a hotspot for a little while, seems to be coming back on again. What what's happening on the ground? And and do you see green shoots in in pockets of Adelaide? Absolutely. Um... You know, I'm not uh, I'm not someone that, that's biased um, on Adelaide because I'm based here. I, I invest in property you know, all, all around Australia. But in terms of the opportunities here in Adelaide, there's some really, really good pockets and really um, good suburbs and, and areas to to invest in. And a lot of it comes back down to, I guess, affordability. But in terms of the, the you know the economic outlook in, in some of these particular areas. Um, we're looking into the Port Adelaide City Council. A very good jobs prospects there moving forward. Um, affordability is is very good. Um, Charles Sturt Council is another area in Adelaide. So we're looking predominantly western suburbs, northwestern suburbs, but also uh, northeast as well. Provide some some great opportunities um, here in, in in the Adelaide market. And you know, I guess for there's a lot of interstate investors now looking at Adelaide because they realise the opportunities here that the price point's really good, I guess, rent yields. That's a big one, isn't it? The price point is 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 incredible. Yeah, yeah, you, you're spot on. And I think, um, you know, we're buying properties that are, you know, sub 400,000, sub 350,000 that are within sort of 10 kilometres um, of the CBD. And we're talking about three-bedroom established properties. So in terms of affordability, it's, there's probably, you know, there's probably no area in Australia where you can get so close to a CBD, and um, for those for those price points. So the opportunities here are, you know, are really really good at the moment. And from my understanding, I think Hobart for a long time was the cheapest capital city to invest in. I think those days are over, and now we're looking at. I can't remember if it was, if it was Perth or Adelaide or Darwin. I think Darwin's quite a bit above, but it might actually be Adelaide as the cheapest capital city. We're we're talking those price points and 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 a fairly good commute to the city. Why why is that? Is there fundamentally something wrong with Adelaide? Are there not? Uh, are there no employment opportunities? I mean, you've got. Um, the Barossa Valley, that's enough for me. Obviously, Shiraz is a big theme on this podcast. But, you know, it's a, it's a, pretty, it's a pretty beautiful, picturesque destination. And, and I'm guessing there, there is a bit of employment. So why do you think there's been a bit of a pillow on the face of, of Adelaide property? That's an awful metaphor. I won't, I won't go and re-edit it. I'll just issue a public apology. Yeah, no, no worries. Oh, look, I think historically the South Australian economy hasn't been a strong one. I, I think... Um, it's probably been very similar to the Tasmanian economy, maybe slightly stronger over the last 20 years. And it's been, there hasn't been a lot of jobs and there has been jobs here, but it's unemployment rates typically been higher than everywhere else. So I think people look at these metrics and think, well, you know, it's, it's not going to, you know, increase in value, you know, in a, in a fast period of time or anything like that. Uh, and they look for the bigger cities. I mean, you know, it's Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane are the three biggest cities in Australia, and then you obviously got Perth. So Adelaide comes in at sort of number five. So it's it's often overlooked, but times are changing a little bit, and there's a lot of um, economic activity, a lot of interstate and overseas investment now coming into Adelaide, which is you know great for the economy. But just like what we were saying before, it's the affordability, and 
a lot of local confidence. You know, you do need investors into an, an area, but you also need local uh, local confidence um, based around what's happening in the economy for people to want to go out there and, and buy their primary residence family home or buy that investment property. And, and there's certainly a lot of confidence in it at the moment. So you, you sort of drew some parallels between Tasmania and, and, and looking further afield than Adelaide. I know you're based there, but you invest across Australia. You, you've been active in, in Tasmania and in Queensland. Are, are there still deals to be had in Tasmania? Because I know it's had a crazy run. And, and, and where is Queensland at the moment? And, and I guess that's a, a pretty broad question because it's a bloody big state. So, so in, ter- in terms of Tasmania, there's... Um there's still some really good opportunities there. And I know Hobart, look, it's been absolutely crazy over the last three to four years. And some of the properties that, that we've purchased down there have you know, got 40% capital growth in, in two years. And, you know, a, a lot of a lot of that growth is um, is obviously starting to slow because everything does slow, you know, after a certain period of time. There's still these good opportunities uh, in Tasmania. We, we think that it, it more so, it's more so on the north coast. Um, some of the smaller areas like you know, Devonport, there's some good little pockets in Launceston as well that are really good price points, very high yields. You can buy, um, just to give you an example, we've we bought one in Launceston. It's, it's around that 6% rental yield, and we're talking three kilometres to the CPD. It's a, it's a three-bedroom established house. It's, it's just it's unbelievable. Um, but we still think there's some really good opportunities in the Tasmanian market because of the the yields because of the affordability, um, very low supply levels, very low vacancy rates in Tasmania as well. So I still I think you need to tread with a bit more caution now than what you would say a year ago. But the opportunities are, are still there. And um, the second part of the question was the the Queensland market. So um, a little bit of a love hate with Queensland uh, property. I do own property up there that hasn't performed that I've owned for, for several years that hasn't performed as well as some of my other properties around Australia. Um, so I, the way that I feel about the, the Taz, uh, sorry, the Queensland market is there will be some areas in Queensland you know, around Brisbane that, that do okay, but I don't think that's the majority of Brisbane. And the re, you know, I will elaborate on that a little bit. I think that the supply levels in Brisbane are just far too high and the demand is really pushed all around Queensland. So if you look at, you know, Melbourne and Sydney, the demand is, you know, from the CBD and then it pushes out. Adelaide's the same from the CBD and pushes out. But in Brisbane, it's, you know, you've got a lot of choices there. You, you know, you can go to the Gold Coast and have a pretty amazing lifestyle. You can go to Sunshine Coast and it's pretty awesome up there as well. And then you can go out to Ipswich, go up to Cairns. And there's just so much area and so much choices, which in terms of when you've got, a lot of supply, a lot of choices. I've never really found that to be a good thing for property investing. It's, you know, you're really wanting the demand to be in a, in a certain area and then push out from there. Um, but in saying that, I know that there will be some opportunities um, in the Queensland market that that people can can seize. I, I think it's more of um, you know, really spending some time on, on doing some due diligence and you know not buying in areas where there's going to be a lot more supply uh, coming onto the market. It sort of leads into a question that I wanted to ask you about, I guess, the growth and, and finding these different areas. Is 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 finding the next sort of big up-and-coming location a big part of your strategy or, or are you looking sort of more about the long-term fundamentals? It's the cliched sort of question of, of timing the market rather than time in the market. Do, do you lean in one direction or is it a mixture of the both for you? Yeah, I definitely lean in, in one direction. Um the direction I lean in is, is, is timing the market. Now I'll explain both of them. So, although 
I believe everybody should be in the market for, for the long term in, in property. I think uh, time in the market is, is is really good as well. But I'll give you an, an example of where it doesn't work. If, if somebody has the, the thought process that properties double every seven to 10 years, so they just go into a market and buy thinking that seven to 10 years later, it will double. But if that particular area has just had its property cycle or just experienced a lot of growth, they might be waiting seven to 10 years before it even grows 5% because it's it's already, um, you know, a great example would be the, the Perth market over the last probably five or six years where if somebody thought that, they, you know, although I think Perth has some great opportunities now, they wouldn't have experienced much capital growth in the last five years. Whereas if you have the, the thought process of, okay, not necessarily looking for a hotspot or, or anything like that, it's more time in the market. So where is this particular area in the property cycle? Where is all the fundamentals lining up for this area? So we can time our entry the best and then stay in the market for you know, 7 to 10, 15, 20 years. And the reason why timing the market, I feel, is far more important than just buying anything and staying in the market is you're wanting to build or use property to build some equity in a short shorter period of time. So you're not wanting to have to have to wait seven years to have some equity. If you can have some equity in one year or twelve months or eighteen months or or even two years to then use that equity to then buy in another place where you can time. Now that that second purchase may not be in the same place you've just bought, but it, if you can keep timing the market to the best of your ability and then staying in the market for a long period of time, I, I really think that's the, that's the best way to, to buy property. And I couldn't agree more. I think a lot of investors don't necessarily take a long-term view with investing. And you think about someone that was chasing returns in in Perth. If they're selling now, that would be a potential disaster because you know you've got to think the turnaround isn't too far away. But it makes sense to to purchase at the room because you get that instant uptick and that and that leverage. So yeah, really interesting points from you on, on that, Luke. Why did you start your your buyers agency, and and what is it that you do for for your clients? Yeah, so I started Four Tier Buyers Agency really to to help other people um, buy property. I, I think that you know over the last you know several years, I've learned a lot of a lot about different investing strategies, a lot, a lot about investing, and I'm really just wanting to help as many people um, get into the market, whether that's a, a primary residence, family home, or whether that's some more advanced strategies in property investing, where they wanting are wanting to build a portfolio and and really you know fast track that, not have to you know, buy a property and then wait, as, as we mentioned before, seven years for some growth. I'm really wanting to work with people and and really, you know, chat to them about how can we really fast track this? How can we buy a, a property this year? How can we buy a property the following year? How can, we, how can we do a property every single year or even multiple properties? And that the only way you can really do that is by knowing certain strategies and knowing where to buy. And that's really what I'm wanting to do now. I've, I've built a... Um, you know, a portfolio of, of some, some nice properties for, for myself. But the satisfaction for me really comes from helping other people, particularly people that, you know, are a little bit lost. And then you can come in and really over-deliver and, and they have amazing results. That would be pretty satisfying, mate. So share the love. How do people get in touch with you? <laughs> yeah, so there's, there's a couple of ways. They can check us out um, on our website, fortier.com.au. Also, our Facebook page, Fortier Buyers Agent. Um, or also they can give us a call on one three hundred eight zero seven one four four. 807 144 That's probably the best ways. 
Beautiful. Sounds nice and easy. Now, um, we've, you've shared some some pretty good gold um, today, Luke, I, I must say, but we're going to have to try and narrow the frame of focus for the final question. And that's basically if you can impart one piece of advice to property investors, what do you think that would be? Oh, that's, a, that, that's a great question. Um, for, for me, it would be whether you're starting out or, or you have a couple of investments, it would be simply to find a bunch of successful people, um, successful property investors that you want to be like and, and really convince them to, to teach you. Or, you know, sometimes it might be through some paid education courses or it might be simply something similar to what I did um, many years ago in, in taking someone out for lunch um, and picking their brain for, for an hour or two. And I, I think ultimately um, you are... You know the, the the close. You know what's that saying? Where you you are the closest of your, your five closest friends or something. I can't I can't think of it right now. But I think it's really true. It's about um, getting around uh, successful people. Look, I, I I don't think you can go wrong. And and certainly as you mentioned before, it's a shortcut to success if you can sort of leverage and uh, avoid the mistakes of others. So fantastic advice, Luke. Thank you very much for for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on the show. Cheers. 